Let's consider again this morning 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. And particularly the certain foundation we have for our salvation. The certain foundation that has been laid for us in Christ in the resurrection. But particularly as Peter will focus our attention this morning in verses 10 through 12. Through the promise of this resurrection. The promise of this salvation given to us by the Spirit of God. Through the prophets of old. Through those who announced the message to us through the preaching of the gospel, and by the same Spirit who has quickened that word to our heart, made us alive in Christ Jesus through faith. It is to that that we turn our attention this morning. So let me read the passage, and then we'll look at it a bit more closely. So I'll read this morning in verses 10 through 12. Actually, let me read, I'll begin in verse 3 and read all the way through 12 for context. So, 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith, for salvation ready to be revealed In the last time. In this, you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy, inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. And it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. And these things which have now been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. And so Peter begins his letter to these suffering Christians, to the suffering people of God throughout all of the generations. By reminding them of the great wonder of the salvation that has been received and given to us in Christ Jesus. And so he points our heaven, our, our eyes out of our present circumstances to heaven, to the future and to the glories of the salvation that have been promised to us in Christ. And this is their hope. And indeed, as we sang about it this morning, it is the resurrection that assures us our sins are forgiven It is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead that sets out every promise of God in Scripture as yes and amen in Him. It's because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead that we are justified. It is because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead that our resurrection is guaranteed. It's because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead that we are gathered here today as the fruit of Christ's work. The resurrection is central to the work and the salvation of God. And it is this salvation that Peter ends this whole doxology with by reminding us that it is a salvation that is not new, but it is the next phase, the culmination of God's eternal plan being worked out in the apex event, the climatic event of the coming of Jesus Christ And all that he would accomplish for us on the cross. And all that he would accomplish for us in the future. Now God established a foundation then in verse 10 for the witness of Christ and his finished work. So the first point that I want us to just notice this morning is the blessing of the foundation that we have. The sure foundation that we have in scripture of the great salvation that Peter is pointing us to uh, in this letter. With absolute clarity and with absolute authority, 
God established for us an irrefutable witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That is, that is this one irrefutable proof of Christianity. There are, there are many proofs. There are many things that lay before us a confidence in the reality of the supernatural work of Scripture. I'll mention that again. Of the uniqueness of the message and the accomplishment of God and the person of Christ. There's many affirmations that we have to the reality of the truth of God's Word and His work in Christ and His work through His people. But at the center of all of that is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's at the center of it all. You remember Paul, or excuse me, yeah, Paul in Acts chapter 17 when he's speaking to the philosophers, when he's speaking to the elite, the intellectual elite of the day. He finishes his entire proclamation to them with this one glorious truth that God has furnished proof to all men by what? Raising him from the dead. Raising him from the dead. He's overlooked the time of ignorance. That's no longer that particular patience of God before the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That has come to an end. Now he has declared to all everywhere that they should repent and believe in him. Because he's furnished proof. He's furnished proof. But the proof that he looks, points us to this morning is the proof that we have in the written word of God. In the written word of God. And he's going to mention three things here that I just want to draw our attention to as the first thing to consider this morning about the certainty that we have of the promises of God accomplished for us in the resurrection through the written word of God through scripture. And the first is this, that it is the prophetic word. It's a prophetic word. It's the prophetic word of God. You'll notice that he says that repeatedly here, it's the prophet's the prophets who prophesied, the Spirit indicating as he predicted the sufferings that would come and the glories that would follow in the person of Jesus Christ. It is the prophetic word, and again, the entire opening section of Peter's letter, indeed the entirety of Scripture, is built on this one thing, God's ability to make a promise and fulfill it. That's Scripture. That God has the ability to make a promise And to fulfill it, to bring it to completion. If that's not true, then everything Peter's been saying up to this point, and indeed, again, every promise of Scripture is worthless. It has no means or ability to give us hope. But look at what everything that Peter has been doing has been pointing to us to the future. That's the whole idea of hope, that there will be an accomplishment of things that we don't yet now have, that we don't yet now see. The idea of an inheritance is what you will receive, what is coming to you that you don't yet now possess in its fullness. The salvation that's going to come in verse 5 is in the last time. It's in the last time. It's going to come, the proof of your faith and the glory of it in verse 7, at the revelation of Jesus Christ from the dead. You will obtain, in verse 9, the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls, but it's what you're waiting for. But all of these are promises of God that He has given to His people, that He has given to us. He's given to us to rest our souls on and find great encouragement. And we have that encouragement because God who made the promise is the one who will fulfill it. And He is the one who will fill it because He is the one who is absolutely sovereign over all things. You ever thought about that? God is the only one... The only being, if you want a fancy word, that can make a promise and be absolutely sure that it will come about. The only one. He is the only one who can speak with absolute certainty and unquestioned confidence. God is the only one. He's the only one that can say something will take place and indeed ensure that it will. Now this is not something to be overlooked. It's not something to take casually. Indeed, not only because Peter points us there, but for our own confidence and faith. God himself has laid out as a primary witness to his deity, to his divine nature, to his reality and to his promises, his ability to say something and then bring it to pass. God has done that on his own. 
Let me just read to you some examples of this. I want to illustrate it. So just follow along. I'm going to read out of the book of Isaiah. Now in Isaiah, you might remember, particularly beginning in chapter 40, the prophet is writing to a people who are at this point, historically, are going to be in captivity. So he's writing prophetically to them. They're not in captivity yet, but they will be in captivity. And so he's writing to a people words and promises of hope that God will, in fact, remain true to his promises. And this is, of course, a people who had been removed from their land, everything that they longed for and hoped in, namely Jerusalem and the temple was destroyed. They're out of their families. They're away from their homeland. They have experienced great discipline of God. But God gave them promises, and they were to believe that these promises would still come to pass. And so he encourages them. And how does he do it? He does so by his assurity that his word will come to pass. Let me just read a few passages. I'm not going to read it all. We don't have time. But I just want, want you to get an idea. In verse 21 of Isaiah 41, he's writing and he says, Present your case, the Lord says. Bring forward your strong arguments, the king of Jacob says. Let them bring forth and declare to us what is going to take place. As for the former events, declare what they were, that we may consider them and know their outcome, or announce to us what is coming. Declare the things that are going to come afterwards, that we may know you are gods. Indeed, do evil, do good or evil, that we may anxiously look about us and fear together. In other words, he brings them to a courtroom and he says, Display the power, have your gods that you're trusting in, display their power by declaring the things that are to take place. He says the same thing in Isaiah chapter 43, uh, verse 8. He says, bring out the people who are blind, even they have eyes and the deaf, even though they have ears and the nations have gathered together, the people who are assembled. Let them declare, let, who among them can declare this? And proclaim to us the former things. Let them present their witness that they may be justified. Or let them hear and say, it is true. He says, you are my witnesses, declare the Lord. And my servant whom I have chosen. Listen. So that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Verse 12. It is I who have declared and saved and proclaimed. You are my witnesses. I act in verse 13, and who can reverse it? Chapter 44, verse 7. Who is like me? Let him proclaim and declare it. Yes, let him recount it to me in order. From the time that I established the ancient nation, let them declare to them the things that are coming and the events that are going to take place. If you're a God, and these gods are truly powerful, let them declare what they will do and let them bring it to pass. Verse 25 of chapter 44. Causing he causes the omens of boasters to fail, making fools out of diviners, causing wise men to draw back, turning their knowledge into foolishness. Listen to verse 26. Confirming the word of his servant and performing the purpose of his messengers. It is I who say of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited. Remember, at this time, Jerusalem lay in ruins. God says she will be inhabited. And the cities of Judah, they shall be built. And I will raise up their ruins. And then he says in verse 28, It is I who says of Cyrus, He is my shepherd and he will perform all my desire. And he declares to Jerusalem, She will be built. Cyrus had not yet been born. It would be O.L. over a generation until he was born. God here declares him by name. And those who want to deny the authority and the suit of Scripture and the supernatural na- nature of Scripture say, well, clearly that was written after the event. None can declare the future like that. But God does, and He holds that up as proof of His divine power. Chapter 45, verse 11, just a few more. Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel and His Maker, ask me about the things to come concerning my sons, and you shall commit to me the work of my hands. It's I who made the earth and created man on it. I stretched out the heavens with my hand and I ordained all of their host. I alone am God, essentially. And I am the alone and the one who can bring these things back. One more. There's more, but I'm just going to read one more. Chapter 46, verses 9 through 11. 
Remember the former things long past. For I am God and there is no other. I am God is there no one like and there is no one like me. Listen. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done. Saying my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Calling a bird of prey from the east. The man of my purpose from a far country. I have spoken. Truly I will bring it to pass. I have planned it. Surely I will do it. In other words, God sets out before all of the nations, before his people, this one great reality as to the certainty of his not only promises, but the very certainty that he alone is God and nothing else and no one else. The prophetic word, that ability for God to give a promise and to make sure it comes true, God has himself held up as the very proof of his power. And here he says, this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you. In other words, he's encouraging us to say, this isn't something new. This isn't something out of the blue, but this is in fact an affirmation of God's promises of salvation that have sustained his people throughout the millennia. But now you have an even greater position to realize the truthfulness of it, even than they did. Now, the glory then of God's prophetic word, though there's many prophecies in Scripture, even several that we just mentioned, is this, is displayed in the person of Jesus Christ. In the person of Jesus Christ. You remember as we go through the Gospels, repeatedly the writers make affirm to us as it was written, as it was written, as it was written. Jesus himself said, I did not come to abolish scripture, but I came to what? You remember? Fulfill it. I came to fulfill it. He is the very embodiment. He is the very reality and the substance of which everything else ultimately was a shadow. Was a shadow. It's the prophetic word of God. Just as a way to illustrate that briefly. We're not going to spend all our time here. But there are over a hundred major prophecies concerning Jesus Christ. There's more if you put in types and those type of things. But there are over a hundred major prophecies concerning Jesus Christ. Someone has figured out that the chance of even eight of these Old Testament prophecies about Christ coming true is about one in 100 quadrillion. I think Dan is the only one who might know what that number actually is. But if you're like me and you need help, that's a one with 17 zeros behind it. 17 zeros. Can you imagine? I'd like to have a bank account with 17 zeros, but on the other side of the decimal point. Uh, now, just to illustrate what this would look like, this would be like covering the state of Texas. Uh, somebody figured this out. In silver dollars, two feet deep, the state of Texas. And then marking one of those coins, blindfolding a person, and then telling him to pick only one coin, and, then, and it being that coin. In other words, it is impossible. It is impossible. And that's only of eight. And yet there are 100 major prophecies concerning Jesus Christ, over 300 prophecies in the whole Bible, if you were to count them all. And they are fulfilled in Christ. They are fulfilled in this Christ. And Peter is saying, you have a confidence. This is something God said that he would accomplish. It's something that he did accomplish. And get this, the promises that are yet to be fulfilled will also be accomplished. So though you're suffering now, though you're waiting now, though you live in a time of hope and not fulfillment, you can be assured that God who said he would bring it to pass will bring it to pass. The inheritance is certain. The salvation will come. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace to come wrote it down. And in that written word, we are assured. We can be absolutely assured of the promises of God. And I'm just going to make this comment. This is just kind of personal. Maybe you had this kind of experience uh, just in terms of where it hits you. Do you realize that the only thing in the entire universe, the only thing in your life, the only thing that you can even ever conceive of that is absolutely certain is this word right here. That's it. That's it. 
It is the word of God. And it is the word of God that tells us of this great salvation in Christ. I want you to notice just a second thing, and I'll go through these a, a little bit quicker. He says, this salvation who was prophesied to you was a prophecy, was a word that came from the Spirit of Christ that was in these prophets. Notice then the supernatural origin of Scripture. And again, I'll just say this quickly. The reason that the prophetic word of God is true is because it did not originate with man, it originated with God. Peter identifies the source here, the Spirit of Christ. Now, you could take the Spirit of Christ in two different ways here. You could say the Spirit of Christ in that it was the Spirit who was in Christ, the Spirit who empowered Christ, the Spirit who was displayed in the life of Christ. Or you could say this is really a reference to the pre-incarnate Son who through the Spirit was foretelling His own coming and His own suffering and His own glory. Both are true. And it doesn't, in one sense, it doesn't really matter which way you were to take it because the point still stands, namely this, that it was God, the very Spirit of God, the very Spirit that was revealed in Christ that was declaring these things. In other words, it wasn't a human message. This was God's message. This was God's promise. This was God's doing. I think it really is probably better understood as the Spirit that was empowering Christ, the Spirit with whom Christ revealed Himself as the Son of God. Matter of fact, he'll say in verse 12, he'll mention the Holy Spirit again as the one who is behind the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ through His church, His people. Christ was marked out by the Spirit, if you'll remember, the great hope and the promise of the Messiah, but this would be a man who was marked by an unusual presence of the Spirit of God. Now, we don't turn to all of them, but Isaiah chapter 11, Isaiah 42, and others. He was a man attested to you by the Spirit. And that same Spirit that revealed Christ as the Son in the flesh, the same Spirit that Christ received and sent on the day of Pentecost, he's saying, is the same Spirit who was in these prophets declaring the events before they came to pass. And this is really more a statement of the doctrine of inspiration. That Scripture, though written by men, though a human book in that sense, does not originate with man. It originates with God. As a matter of fact, Peter will make that same statement you don't turn there, but he'll make the same statement or similar statement in chapter 1 of Second Peter, his second letter. He says, first of all, know this, no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. In other words, it doesn't come from human reasoning. It doesn't come from human intellect. It doesn't come from human perception. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. They spoke from God. So we have a divine book. We have a divine revelation. We have a divinely revealed salvation in Christ. And so this is the spirit of Christ. And there is here an indication, when you put this with the rest of the revelation of Christ and the spirit of the divine nature of Christ. And that's more by implication in this particular verse. But it is the Spirit of Christ who is in Romans 8 called the Spirit of God. The Spirit of Christ in you. The Holy Spirit. In Galatians 4, He is the Spirit of the Son sent forth by the Father. Galatians 4, 6. In 2 Corinthians, He just says the Lord is the Spirit. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's liberty. Just as from the Lord, the Spirit, we're being transformed into the same image of glory to glory. And such is the wonder and the mystery of the triune nature of God, which Peter has already established right at the beginning. The Father, who planned by His foreknowledge. The Spirit, who sanctifies. Jesus Christ, who redeemed by the sprinkling of His blood. This is a Trinitarian tract, really, in many ways. The Father is the focus of verses 3 through 5, the Son in 6 through 9, and here the Spirit. And here He's identified as the Spirit of Christ. And it is the Spirit of Christ 
who revealed these things. It is the Spirit of Christ who made them known to you by making them understandable. Now, let me just give you one verse here just to emphasize this point. Don't, don't turn there. But in John 16, Jesus makes this promise. Remember, he's talking to his disciples. He says, there's things you can't understand right now, but you will in the future. And, and this is when he says you'll understand them. When he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of mine, and he will disclose it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said he takes of mine, and he will disclose it to you. And so there is a sense, even where Peter, who heard Jesus speaking those words, Peter, who was standing there listening to this discourse of Christ, is really reflecting that even here. It's the Spirit of Christ, yes, but everything that the Father has belongs to the Son. Everything that the Son has belongs to the Spirit. He takes from Him and He reveals it to you. And here He places that in the Old Testament. But technically... There was not Christ in the Old Testament because he was the eternal son yet to be united to flesh. Christ is specifically the eternal son united to flesh. So it's probably better here to say the same spirit that was in Christ energizing him, revealing him, empowering him, enabling him, the one that he would receive ascended to the Father was the one who was indicating his sufferings that would come. This is then a glorious glorious confidence and statement about the eternal and divine nature of God and His purposes in Christ and His certainty of laying down His promises in His Word. In His Word. He spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets of old. So the origin of Scripture is, yes, it's from men. God used personalities, mind, historical circumstances, and all of those things. But it was men moved along by the Holy Spirit of God, recording the exact words of God, so that when we read Scripture, we have not only the words of Peter here, but we have the exact words of God that he had determined for us to have. And it's a unique message, and the message here is of salvation. So the first point is simply that God has laid down a certainty of our salvation, the certainty of His promises in His Word, which is the very Word of God. He's testified to the reality of these promises by declaring beforehand the things that would come to pass, what He would do to to affirm the truthfulness of His Word. Notice secondly here then, I just will highlight this, is that it pointed to the blessing of the finished work of Christ. What did they seek to know? They seek to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ was in, in them indicating, or in them, within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. The overarching theme of Scripture is the glory of God through creation, judgment, and redemption. The idea of salvation shines against the backdrop of judgment. As a matter of fact, one uh, biblical theology that came out in the last year or so is titled God's Glory and Salvation Through Judgment. And that captures the message here of what Peter is saying. God's glory and salvation through judgment. This salvation that was promised to you, that was laid down in His Word, that was accomplished in Christ is a salvation that was purchased for you through the judgment Christ bore on your behalf, through what he would suffer as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the promises that he would give through the glory of Christ, risen and now at the right hand of the Father. So what is it that he predicted? He predicted again the grace that would come to you. In verse 13, he simply calls it the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And it was a grace that would come through the sufferings of Christ. It was grace that would come at the revelation of the glory of Christ. So it's both suffering and glory. Mike read it this morning, but that encompasses the whole hope of the promise, right? Of Scripture, I delivered to you as of first importance what I received, 
that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scripture. That was the hope. That was the hope. Now, sadly, when Christ came and experienced the first part of what they predicted, namely the sufferings that he would endure, most of the people missed it, didn't they? Well, we've seen that plenty in the Gospels. We know that. The spiritual apostasy of the leaders and their blindness. Remember Christ called them the blind, leading the blind. Didn't didn't have room in their theology and their messianic hope for the sufferings of Christ. But Peter lays out for us here clearly that it was laid down. That was something that they should have seen. They had no place for a Christ who would not bring only glory to the nation of Israel. Glory into a kingdom that they considered themselves to be fully deserving of, essentially. Able to attain, in some degree, by their own, by their own obedience to the law. But he says, no. What the prophets laid down and what they anticipated was that he would suffer. And just as a footnote here, this is sadly, for the same reason... I mean, different specifics, but the same idea that Christ is missed by many today, simply because they have a wrong or narrow view of who Christ actually is. They wanted a Christ only of victory and blessing to Israel. They didn't want a Christ of absolute repentance. They didn't want that Christ. They wanted a Christ that would bring glory to them, not one that would have to suffer and be shamed as a result of their own sin. They didn't want a sacrifice for sin, only a glorious king. Many today want a Christ that's only a savior, and only one who constantly forgives their sin, but makes no demands on holiness, no demands on repentance, no demands on obedience to him. And so they are believing in a Christ that does not exist. But the Christ that was anticipated, the portrait that was painted of, was of one who would suffer before he entered into his glories. Really, literally, it would be, and I think this is a little more striking to say it this way, is the sufferings that are in reference to Christ and the glories after these things. The glories after these things. And of course, these leaders, when Christ came at first, weren't wrong weren't wrong to emphasize the glories of the kingdom. They weren't wrong to see the, the wonders of salvation, the wonders of the future kingdom when Christ would rule over the earth, when there would be righteousness that dwells everywhere. They weren't wrong to expect that. They were wrong to expect that without first having an atonement for sin provided by the same Messiah. You can't understand that any more than they could until there's a recognition of personal sin. Let me just read one verse to you. He says in chapter 3, or verse 3 of chapter 10 of Romans, For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. The prophet said that Christ was going to suffer. Why couldn't they understand the suffering? Why couldn't they accept that about this Messiah who had proven himself to them in so many ways? It was because they did not come to grips, they would not come to grips with the reality of their sin. That they were a nation who needed redemption not by something that they could do, but by something that God must do on their behalf. And frankly, even Peter himself, though he writes with such confidence now in his letter, didn't get it either. It was an incomprehensible thought to him that one so glorious as the Messiah would suffer. Do you remember what, you remember it, of course, in Matthew chapter 16, when Jesus told them, when he makes this switch uh, in his preparing for them and his trek to Jerusalem, what's going to happen? He said, Jesus began to show his disciples he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised on the third day. 
And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. God forbid it, Lord. This shall never happen to you. And Jesus turned and get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interest, but man's. Peter didn't get it. Peter wanted to take his sword out and defend him when they came to took him. And we can honor Peter for his diligence and love for Christ, but it also a display of his ignorance. The Messiah was to suffer. The Messiah was to suffer. People have a hard time with that today. Those who deny that there was actually a vicarious suffering of Christ, that he stood as a substitute. For many, that's a cause of their mocking the gospel. Particularly, you know, sometimes with the more vocal, like new atheists, or they're called and such, it says, it is absolutely an offensive thing. It's divine child abuse that God would cause suffering to one who was innocent. And yet God says, that's always been the plan. That's always been the plan. The one that would redeem you would be one who must suffer. Who must suffer. So Peter got this later. He understood this later after the resurrection of Christ. He, he understood it later after the ascension of Christ. After the sending of the Holy Spirit. But it took him some time. This was not in their thinking. It wasn't, it wasn't in their plan that there would be suffering. Because they didn't yet fully realize the grievousness of their sin, but suffering is exactly, exactly what was anticipated. I mean, as a matter of fact, if you'll remember, the very first promise of Scripture, the very first preaching of the gospel after the fall was a promise that the one coming would suffer, that he would suffer before he overturned the curse. Genesis 3.15 He shall bruise you, speaking to the serpent, on the head, and you shall bruise him on the hill. Hill. He's going to suffer. And Satan is going to be, in some part of that, the cause of his suffering. Through the working of evil men. The very promise is always included that it would be the suffering from the Messiah. And they should have gotten this again, and we should understand this. That the cost of our ability to rejoice in salvation was because of the suffering that had to take place. Remember, he told Adam, the day you eat of it, you shall die. The prophet said, Ezekiel 18, the soul that sins will die. And the only acceptable sacrifice to God is the shedding of blood as an atonement for sin. Listen to Leviticus 17. Verse 11, for the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is, by the, it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. For as the life of all flesh is, is of all flesh, its blood is identified with its life. Therefore, I said to the sons of Israel, you're not to eat the blood of any flesh, for the life of all flesh is in his blood. Whoever eats it shall be cut off. In other words, Israel, the only way that you can maintain your fellowship with me, the only way that you can approach a holy God is if there is the shedding of blood. The problem is, is that the shedding of bulls and goats never atoned for anyone's sin. Ultimately, it played its role within the providence of God, within the covenant of God of the Old Testament, the Mosaic covenant, to cleanse when done by faith. But, as the writer of Hebrews says, it had to keep being done because it never was the final solution. David said that, the blood of bulls and goats you do not desire. A broken and contrite heart you will not despise. And then you'll accept the offerings of his hand and sacrifice. So they, they should have understood that this Christ who was going to be glorious was a Christ who also had to suffer. And that was the divine mystery we'll mention. How can he be identified as a ruler equal in glory really to the God of Israel and yet suffer? But that clearly is what the prophets were anticipating. That's clearly what the nation should have understood if they had a right understanding of the law and if they would have had a right understanding of their sin. 
that this one who was to come had to be one who would suffer. Who would suffer. Oh, so many. Let me just read one to you. You're familiar with this. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief if he would render himself as a guilt offering. He will see his offspring prolong his days. There's the resurrection. And the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. And as a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied by his knowledge. The righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. I will allot him a portion with the great. He will divide the booty with the strong. Because he poured out himself to death, he was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. Jewish Jewish exegetes, rabbis, place that suffering servant there or identify as the nation of Israel. But that doesn't work because the nation of Israel can't die for Israel's own sins. This was the Messiah that was to come. The Messiah that was to come. And so he laid the foundation in the word that they should have understood that there needed to be a sacrifice that only God could provide and it needed to be a man. And so Christ came and he suffered. His first coming was with suffering. Let me just give you at least, you don't have to write these down unless you want, but let me give you at least seven ways he suffered. And then we'll move on. His suffering involved what? His suffering involved living among his fallen creatures, seeing the consequences of sin. You'll remember when Lazarus and they were all weeping around it and it says that Jesus wept. The language there actually speaks not of just some kind of emotional sadness that he had because everybody else was sad. The language there actually speaks of a kind of anger that he had. Seeing the unbelief Seeing the consequences of sin, even though he knew he would raise Lazarus, and that was his whole life. The perfect and holy one living among a fallen, his fallen creatures, his image bearers. The suffering involved his obedience through the greatest trials. Hebrews 5.8, he learned obedience, though a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Right, what he suffered. His obedience was perfected Because of the greatness of his suffering. And when he obeyed against the greatest odds and opposition, ultimately on the cross, he became then for us a perfect mediator. His suffering involved the rejection of his nation, the betrayal of his close friend, Judas, the failure of his closest friends, the physical pain of the crucifixion, But ultimately, all of that pointing to one great thing, one great event of his suffering, which is the bearing of the Father's wrath against sin. Your sin, my sin, who have trusted him. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so this is what they looked forward to. Sure, they didn't know the cross. It says they were seeking to know what person. You could say what time or what kind of time the language could be or what person or manner of time as the New American Standard has it. That's good. And the other, the point basically is this, however, that they just, they didn't know. How could they figure all this together? Suffering? Yes. Glory? Later. It was greatly curious. But the suffering now, now Peter understood. And now we understand. And those who at the time God opened their eyes like on the day of Pentecost understood that yes, there had to be suffering. There had to be death. There had to be the cross because there is the reality of sin. And so they predicted this. And the glories that would follow after these things, ultimately his suffering was... A sin-bearing suffering, but it wasn't the end. We sang that in one of our songs. Peter mentioned it. It was impossible for death to hold him. And so they saw also the glories that were to follow. We read about it in Acts chapter 2. There were these future glories as well that they knew that were going to be a part of the kingdom of God and the promise of God. They just didn't know how all of this was to follow. And here we have the great privilege of knowing so much more. 
the glory of Christ. The glory of Christ. It would come as a result of his suffering. It's the glory of Christ that would come as a result of his resurrection, his ascension, his return to the earth when he returns in the glory of his Father and with all of the holy angels. The glory of Christ when he establishes his kingdom and then he hands the kingdom back to the Father that God may be all in all. 1 Corinthians 15, 28. So he knew that there was glory. They knew that there was glory, but they knew that there was suffering first. And why is he writing this to them? And why is this matter to us? Because, again, he's writing to a people who are, in some ways, very similar and follow or following in the same pattern of God's people and righteous ones throughout all of the ages, suffering first and then glory. Which of the prophets did you not persecute and kill? Jesus said to the leaders. Even the great prophet, the one promised by Moses, he was going to suffer. Even the sinless Messiah, the Son of God, was going to suffer before he entered into glory. So Christian, don't be surprised when you suffer before you receive the fullness of the glory that God has promised to you. That's the encouragement of it. What they did not know, however, when they made these, among many other things, they did not understand that there would be a separation. They didn't understand that the suffering of Christ and then the glory of Christ would be separated by millennia. By millennia. Over 2,000 years, or about 2,000 years for us. They, they couldn't see that. They couldn't see there would be this intervening time. Even the, even the disciples and Peter again himself didn't understand this. Right before Jesus was ascended, they said, when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is, this, is it at this time you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? He says, it's not for you to know the time or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. Is it at this time? How long is it going to be? How long do we have to wait? How long do we have to suffer? God has fixed the time for that. God has determined it. Yours is to wait and to trust in the promise. And don't think that something strange is happening to you. Again, he said that in verse 12 of chapter 4. Don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal which comes for your testing as though some strange thing were happening. But to the degree that you, degree you share in the suffering of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. You're experiencing what Christ experienced. They predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glory that was to follow. We who are in Christ experience the suffering of belonging to Christ in this world, but we hope in the glories to follow. That's what the writer of Hebrews said, right? Despising the shame, he looked forward to the joy, the glory, as it were, of what was at the end of the cross. One made a comment on this just for encouragement. He said, our suffering is not a sign that Christ has betrayed us, or that he is no longer Lord. Rather it is a sign of our fellowship with the risen Lord. How he suffered for us. Suffering indeed becomes a sign of the glory that is to follow. Rather than in your sufferings find God's abandonment. There is in fact rather an affirmation of God's grace. His love to you. You're experiencing what his son experienced. And even his son, the risen son is there also to be a sympathetic high priest to walk through you with that suffering. Paul calls it the fellowship of suffering. So there's the pattern. Suffering and glory. Right now, in a very similar way to those who are in the Old Testament, the righteous ones who were waiting for the full glory to be revealed, even as they suffered for their righteousness, even so it is with us. Even as it was with Christ. Suffering, then glory. Suffering, then glory. And indeed, the suffering, as he already said in verse 7, is so that the genuineness of your faith, which is more precious than gold, though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ from the dead. 
It's hard for them to figure all of that out. But we have, and this is the third point, just very quickly, that brings us into the table. We have an even greater revelation. We have an even greater certainty than they did. Look at what he says. They, they prophesied of this grace. They made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and glories to follow. And it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you and these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit, sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. This is then the blessedness of the new covenant. The blessedness of the new covenant. This is the glory of the salvation that was anticipated. When we celebrate the table this morning, Jesus says, this is the cup, the new covenant in my blood. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This is the greater covenant this is the greater relationship that God would enter in through with His people through His Son who would accomplish redemption. They only saw it in shadows, in types, in symbols. They daily had to bring their sacrifices to the temple. They daily had to be reminded that there yet remained a final sacrifice for sin. But He's saying, we have all of that. Even the greatness of these prophets is in their message that they knew wasn't ultimately going to be experienced by them. It would be experienced, however, and is by us. They didn't receive it. He says in the end of of Hebrews chapter 11, because they, after saying what those suffered by faith and hope, he says, because God had provided, they did not receive what was promised because God had provided something better for us so that apart from him, they would not be made perfect. The great glory of God is in the fulfillment of his promise in Christ. We've gotten so used to the church just being here, it's almost like we think it was always here. But it wasn't. Listen to this. How important is the glory of this message, the reality of us gathered here in this room today and what we'll celebrate in the table? How significant is it? Is it something we do and we just go home and we go, isn't that nice? Listen to what Paul said in Ephesians 3. He says, listen, The mystery which is for ages has been hidden in God who created all things. He's talking about the the riches of being one body in Christ, Jew and Gentile. He says this, "It it is so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the church, to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. We have the fulfillment of God's promise, not only his promise, but we have all of the wonders and all of the mystery and all of the shadows made clear to us in Christ. They couldn't even grasp that, these great prophets of God, and yet we have it laid before our eyes. Christ crucified, Christ risen. Christ ascended, Christ returning. And look what he says. He says, this is for you. It wasn't themselves, but you, you. We could just as much say, you, he is serving in these things. You, who are here this morning. You, who see and are witness to the great glory of God in Christ. You, this is also, just simply, the side note here, an implication to the living word of God. He says there was a living word to them because even though they gave it, they received it as the word of God. They didn't understand everything. They couldn't. But they knew it was a promise that God would fulfill. And so it sustained them. And it was the living word of God. And so it is from us. We haven't seen Christ. 
We didn't see him when he was here. We don't see him now. But believing, we love him and we rejoice with joy inexpressible. And we see him and we learn of him and we hear of him in the living word of God. He's going to make that point at the end of the chapter. You've been born again by this word. It's the living word of God, Old and New Testament. And so when they saw it and made careful search and inquiry, it wasn't an academic exercise. It was because they longed to look into the glories of the mystery of the promises. Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, Matthew 13, that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see, and to hear what you hear and did not hear. They saw it in hope. We see it in hope and yes, in the ultimate fulfillment. But we have this great privilege within the history of God's redemptive work to know Christ. To know Christ. And that should provide for us an extreme amount of encouragement. He says, things into which angels long to look. Angels weren't surprised about the details of the ministry of Christ. They announced his birth. They explained his birth. They sustained him during his ministry. They comforted him after his temptation. They announced his resurrection. It was an angel with the disciples when he ascended to heaven that said he's going to return in the same way. They don't long to look into details. Indeed, they're they're God's servants in making those details known. Then what is it that they long to look into? What is it that they long to look into? They long to understand this. You mean God forgives sinners? Not only that, but that the Son of God, eternal Son of God, is going to unite Himself to flesh? That He's going to suffer the wrath of the Father in their place? And then He's going to give them all of the promises that Christ is going to obtain for them? What in the world is that about? Remember the angels when they fell, Hebrews 2, God did not give help to them. When Satan fell and the other angels, what happened? That was it. But here we are, dust, sinners, and God forgives us and gives us a more exalted place in heaven and then even the angels themselves, angels aren't united to the Son, and, but we are. Angels, there's no indication, are indwelled by the Holy Spirit, but we are. There was no forgiveness for them, but then God looks. They long to look, and, but God has accomplished salvation to us. And they're not jealous because Luke 15 says, well, first, because they're holy angels... There's joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. They're amazed by it. They're amazed by it. We should be amazed by our salvation. Do you long? Is it a mystery to you that God would forgive your sin if you've trusted in Him? If you haven't trusted in Him, that is the greatest Wait that lays before you if can I participate in this work of God in Christ. And that's through repentance and faith. If you do know him, do you, are you captured with Christ that you long to look into the salvation? Do you read scripture and are you amazed at what God has done for you in Christ? Do you think about your life and your own foolishness and darkness and sin out of which God called you and amazed how could he forgive sinners? We should have the wonder of angels here, really. Longing to understand what is the wonder of the glory of the salvation that we have received. It's marvelous. He who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than the John himself, John the Baptist, Matthew 11. And this is what we celebrate in the table when we come. So this table is for believers. This table is for believers. This table is a fruit, as it were, of God's work as we come to celebrate. It is where the purchased people of God, those who have committed their lives to Christ, who have 
lost their life that they might gain it in him, who have repented of sin, who seek to walk with him daily, putting to death the deeds of the flesh, being renewed in the mind, confessing our sin and changing and walking by the power of the Spirit to honor him and to obey him. That's who the table is for. Nothing magical in it. But it is a testimony to this. Angels see us taking this table. Angels see us as the redeemed of God. Angels see us as those in union with Christ. And they are stunned. And we, as we take this table and remember our salvation in Christ, should be amazed that we, sinners, have been given the great privilege of fellowship with God, to be in Christ, to one day stand before Him holy and blameless. Because we live after the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Because we see these wonderful promises and we, like those of old, hope and live in hope of the full experience of our salvation in Jesus. So let me pray and then the men will hand out the elements and we'll remember the Lord in the table. Father, thank you for this your word. I pray that you would encourage us now as we remember your death and resurrection in the table, that you would strengthen our our faith and that we would be renewed in our affections to live for your honor and your glory. In your name, Jesus, amen.